Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, November the 3rd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Last Saturday, Sinn Féin held its annual Ardesh in the Helix Theatre in Dublin, and most media attention focused on the party's decision to end its opposition to non-jury courts, such as the Special Criminal Court, in, in circumstances where they are deemed necessary due to the risk of jury intimidation or for other reasons. It is significant in itself as it represents the ending of a policy which has its roots in the party's own history as an advocate for so-called armed struggle, which often saw Republicans being prosecuted by those very same courts. So what does that decision and the general tenor of the conference this year tell us about where exactly Sinn Féin is at as it makes its preparations for what many expect will be an historic entry into government after the next election? Our political correspondent Jennifer Bray wrote an in-depth analysis of this very question a couple of days ago in the Irish Times, and it's fair to say it's a subject which has also been preoccupying our political editor, Pat Lee, and they're both here to discuss it today. Hi, guys. Hi. Top of the morning to you, Hugh. Jen, I'll go to you first, and we'll look at the nitty-gritty, which you look at in the piece, which is numbers, constituencies, the number of seats the party could reasonably expect to achieve on the basis of the kind of poll results it's getting right now. And you did a breakdown of that. Where can Sinn Féin hope or aspire to get to after the next election in, in terms of numbers of seats in the Dáil? Yeah, no, I think obviously there's all of these projections are always, you know, very heavily caveated in that this is a snapshot in a moment in time. If the polls translated into reality and if the trajectory continued as as it is at the moment. Um, so taking that as it is and also depending on, you know, what transpires over the next couple of years. But at this moment in time, I kind of just went through a couple of the different constituencies and looked at their numbers and tried to figure out what is the actual trajectory that they're on now if there is an election called sooner Uh, rather than later. So we know that uh, in 2020, February 2020, uh, which I still cannot believe is last year because it honestly feels like (laughs) 10 years ago. But anyway, uh, they, you know, had a really fantastic day. Uh, They had won 37 seats. Um, It was really seismic and we've we've gone through that, you know, uh, many's the time. Um, And if we look at the polls at the moment, I mean, our most recent poll um, showed that Sinn Féin has taken this 10-point lead over Fine Gael and it's their highest rating ever in the series. So I think it is fair to assume that the trend is most certainly there. Um, now, if we look at the actual numbers, so they, you know, they have at the moment 37, you know, we know that a dull majority at the moment, there's a 160 days and all will be 80 plus one. Um, you know, there's still a very long way off that. Um, but on my analysis at present, they could get to, I think, up to around 55 seats if there were an election before the end of the year, um, maybe even 60 if they had the right candidate strategy and the right uh, voting strategy in different constituencies. Um, now, we can get into a little bit more later on about how that's obviously short of the number that they need and how would they bridge that gap. But there are constituencies which are really obvious, you know, that you can imagine they would view as a done deal. Like, you know, think, for example, of Dublin Central. So that's Mary Lou McDonald's constituency, obviously. Um, now, 
Sinn Féin obviously did not expect to do as well as they did because if they had expected and they had known that they would have run a second candidate there and in many other places, in some places maybe even a third candidate. Um, so there is a place where they would look to, you know, basically Mary Lou MacDonald, she topped the poll. She had more than 11,000 first preference votes. So that's a place where uh, they would look to add a, a second seat, you know, on her um, and on her on the back of her her sales. So then you obviously you've got Dublin Bay North, loads of areas in Dublin, but in Dublin Bay North, um, you know, Denise Mitchell, her figures in 2020 were incredible. You know, she I had to go back and double check this because I, I thought it was a mistake when I was writing it. I'd forgotten that she actually um, crossed the line of more than 21,000 votes, which was 9,409 over the quota. So, I mean, there's another place where they would be looking, you know, to get the right candidate in and and, and add another person uh, into a doll seat. Um, and where what I was looking at in these kind of constituencies and other constituencies around the country is what seats would they be targeting? Uh, where is it that they would expect to make gains and who made gains off them the last time around? And we know that there are a lot of candidates on the left who did really, really well from Sinn Féin transfers, uh, even independent candidates and left-leaning independent candidates did quite well in different constituencies. So Somewhere like this in Dublin Bay North, you could imagine that uh, Kean O'Callaghan and the Sock Dems, that would be the seat or that kind of seat that they would be um, hoping would be vulnerable and would be looking to take, even though the Sock Dems are kind of holding holding steady at the polls, relatively speaking. Um, I was interested too in constituencies where they might think about a three-candidate strategy. Now, we know for a whole load of reasons that a three-candidate strategy can be dodgy. Um, it could split the vote, you know, and and it doesn't always work out. And in fact, they've they've learned that before, I think. So, in Donegal, they took forty five percent of the first preference vote, um, in twenty twenty, and you know they got Pierce Doherty there and, and Port McLaughlin, and they will be. I hear that there is a lot of wrangling internally in the party about whether they should run, um, a third candidate or not. But you know, the hope that they would have is that they'd run these two well known Pierce Doherty, obviously very well known, Port McLaughlin's well known candidates and then a third candidate will come in if even on the back of kind of surpluses and transfers. So that's what they would be looking at there. Then I was interested too in Cork because obviously, you know, many people would say Cork is the real capital. Um, I'm not going to go there because obviously I'm a dub. But um, we'll be looking at Cork, North Central. Um, they would be looking to add a seat on top of Thomas Gould's. Again, who would they be targeting? Maybe PBP's uh, Mick Barry. Um, Cork East, um, you know, where Pat Buckley did really well the last time. And then Cork Northwest, where there's two Fianna Fáil seats, um, Andreas Moynihan and Michael Moynihan. And the chat is that maybe they, they would view one of those seats as being, you know, given Fianna Fáil's numbers, not uh, a sure bet for them and possibly uh, was where, is where Sinn Féin can make inroads. And we have to remember that they are running um, Leonie Reda in this constituency. Um, and I'm sure she wished she had a run the last time, to be honest. But, you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing and all that. Um, and yeah, so, you know, this same pattern kind of holds through in different constituencies um, all across the country. And I think, like I said, if you add them all up and you you, you come to the, the numbers, I'd be looking at 55 to 60 seats at present. Now, now I could be totally wrong. I'm, who knows? But no, I mean, it looks pretty persuasive to me. Pat, can I just draw out a couple of conclusions that I would take from what, what Jen was describing there? Uh, there are some constituencies like uh, the, the Cork East one um, she mentions where I think it's just they are remaining pockets of the country where Sinn Féin doesn't have a seat yet and if it's rising to be the largest party in the country it can reasonably expect to be competing for a seat the next time out. But what's a more prevalent pattern? Uh, Dublin Central, uh, um, Dublin Bay North, um, Cork uh, North Central. 
is these seats which it left behind the last time. There was a there was quite a lot of talk of a vote left strategy, I remember, before the last election. And the parties who benefited from that strategy, from those transfers, were people before profit, to some extent, the Social Democrats. And Sinn Féin is going to want to eat all their lunch the next time out, it seems clear to me. And I wonder what that means about relationships between those parties over the next two years and how the campaign plays out when it when it comes to it. Does the vote left strategy fall apart under that strain? Well, it won't do anything for the relationships, you would imagine, if you know, as uh, as many of those TDs in this, whose seats Sinn Féin will be targeting, uh, and, you know, it, it'll be as obvious to them as uh, as it is to us. But in a way, the relations between the left-wing parties matter less this side of the election than they will the far side of the election. And, uh, you know, I think what you have to look at once you, you know, to digest the implications of Jen's pretty acute analysis of where the seats might fall for them, the implications that are to try and figure out what is their route to government. You know, it seems to me that there's two possible routes to government for Sinn Féin after the next election. One is at the head of a left-led coalition, which would, you know, make the magic 80-plus numbers between Sinn Féin, left independents, the Labour Party, the Social Democrats, maybe people before profit, solidarity uh, uh, as well, uh, um, and potentially the, potentially the Green Party. Now, you know, we can go on to talk about the viability of that uh, coalition in, uh, in, in a bit, but it is certainly true that if Sinn Féin is gaining seats at the expense of other left-wing parties, then that doesn't necessarily bring the prospect of a left-led coalition any closer, if you know what I mean. And the other route uh, to government for Sinn Féin then is, is a potential coalition with, uh, with Fianna Fáil. But if what you're interested in is a left-led coalition, then Sinn Féin needs to take the seats of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are of rural independence rather than uh, rather than other left-wing TDs, which is, you know, where many of those seats, as Jen points out, are likely to fall to them. I mean, another part of this, Jen, which which you refer to, is the is I suppose the problems of success as a party gets much bigger. It has to find more candidates. There can be difficulty in, you know, maintaining perhaps a you know a quality threshold in relation to those. And there's the there's the never-ending problem for larger parties in the Irish political system of internecine quarrels about who gets nominated and who gets which part of the, the constituency, which aren't a problem if you're a smaller party with one candidate per constituency, but are a big one. And then you add to that the fact that gender quotas, the requirement for uh, a minimum of forty uh, percent uh, candidates next time out in terms of the the gender split um, is going to put additional pressure on this, and these things can cause big trouble for parties, can't they? And they can end up losing seats if they get it wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And that part of the puzzle that the candidate selection obviously is something that they have been working on since February twenty twenty, um, and they are in the process of around the country looking at their tickets and figuring out, you know, who goes where. Yeah, so if you look somewhere like Limerick County, where the party probably targeting those seats that Pat was talking about, independent seats, you know, like Richard O'Donoghue, they had a councillor there 
who came close to winning a seat for the party in the last election. Um, and then we heard, I think it was our colleague Harry McGee, had a piece about this edict that came down from party headquarters that only a female candidate uh, would be allowed to stand um, in that constituency uh, in the next election. And the reason why is obvious because Sinn Féin is the same as all other political parties will have to increase the number of women on the ticket. And that is because from 2023, the gender quota, which was 30% in 2020 in the last election, will rise to 40%. And that obviously puts pressure on political parties because this isn't a matter of, you know, an arbitrary figure. You know, if you don't hit that figure, the party at risks losing state funding. So there, this won't be the only constituency where we see this happen. I mean, that is a, it's a really high figure especially when you consider that when Sinn Féin ran their last slew of candidates, you know, there is a real suspicion that they didn't suspect that a lot of those candidates would actually get elected. It'll have to be different, I think, the next time around. I think there'll have to be obviously much more consideration put into the candidates and and how they would fare in debates and even in their local local media debates, because the questions that will be asked of the candidates the next time around, I think will be a different vein because this time the party, maybe if it's looking at itself as a government and waiting, then the, the public and the media and all other, you know, branches of Irish society will be looking at them in similar veins. So the questions, I think, will be different. It will be more like, well, what will you do? Or what, well, you know, what could you do? Rather than sort of more abstract um, ideals. So that, that'll be a big, a big part of the, the puzzle, I suppose. How do you get that figure up to make sure you maintain all your state funding? Uh, without putting other noses out of joint for candidates who previously expected to run, um, while also making sure you have the requisite number of, of candidates in ticket, because I believe they want to run up to an extra 30 candidates, at least. I mean, the other challenge for the party, Pat, which which Jen points out in, in her article, is in order to increase its overall vote and move out from its, you know, its traditional core base of working class voters and young voters and certain other sections of society, it needs to appeal to people who previously exhibited resistance to Sinn Féin for for whatever reason, both in terms of increasing its share of the overall first preferences, or maybe just as importantly also to have some chance at transfers from some of those voters, because traditionally one of the drags on Sinn Féin's, uh, on Sinn Féin's results was a sort of a uh, transfer resistance among some parts of the population. The polls are quite good on that, aren't they? That traditional resistance among, say, middle-class voters does seem to be ebbing away to some extent. It's waning amongst middle-class voters and it's particularly waning among young middle-class voters. And it's waning and you can see it, you can track it in the polls if you look at them, or look at it over time. It's how that resistance is waning right right across the board at, at, at a greater pace in some dem- demographic than others. Uh, and, and this, of course, is the nature of Irish electoral competition that, you know, relatively small numbers of votes are so valuable that this, and the the imperative for all parties uh, is not just to, uh, not just to have people, get people to vote for them, but not to be, not to regard them as toxic, not to stay away from them, not to uh, avoid transferring to them down towards the middle of the ballot paper, because that may be the difference, be, you know, in a, in, in a handful of seats, in a handful of constituencies. The margins are so tight in Irish electoral politics that this, uh, you know, this, this impels candidates and parties to try to avoid annoying people. And that is one of the things that drags everybody into the centre in uh, in Irish 
electoral politics. And I guess we are seeing some of those similar dynamics at play with Sinn Féin at, at the moment. The balance that the party will have to strike over the next couple of years is to retain its campaigning zeal, its left-wing edge, its, its, its radical policies that appeal to so many, uh, uh, so many younger voters, while at the same time smoothing off maybe the rough edges that have scared off middle-class voters and older voters who, let us not forget, vote in greater numbers than, uh, than yeah, proportionately than, uh, than young people. So that's the balance, I think, that the, that the party will have to, uh, will have to strike over, over the coming years. And as it does that, to project itself, and I was writing about this a couple of weeks ago, that suddenly you've started to notice the phrase Sinn Féin in government or in government Sinn Féin would in all the, uh, uh, the statements and sound bites that party spokesmen are, uh, are now making. That phrase, and it was all over the place at the, uh, at the Ordesh, uh, last last weekend, not just in Mary Lou McDonald's speech, but in all the uh, speeches and soundbites that were given by, uh, by by party spokesmen, this projecting themselves as the government in waiting, while striking that balance between maintaining their radicalism but trying not to scare off uh, voters in 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 the middle class and older age brackets, that's the challenge for the party over the coming years. And Jen, you've made some very interesting observations on this. You know. Clearly, it's a it's a huge challenge for a party which has never been in government in the history of this state um, to present itself as a credible um, as the credible party to lead the next government. There's an advantage because, of course, they are presenting themselves as as change agents, and that's the good side of it. The bad side is that none of them have any actual experience in government at all. And you offer a couple of examples of of how key frontbench spokespeople in areas like health and housing are sort of reaching out and building bridges or building their credibility as as people who could well be ministers in two or three years' time. Yeah, they definitely are. And it's easier, I think, when you are in... It is easier when you're in opposition to do that because obviously you can promise the earth, moon and the stars to whatever, you know, advocacy group or interest group or representative group um, without actually having to take the flack of making the decision, which often doesn't quite work out that way, as we know from what it's actually like to... Uh, from witnessing uh, different careers in government and in cabinet. So, you know, if I, you take, I took the example, I think, of um, David Cullinan, who uh, covers the health portfolio for, for Sinn Féin. And, you know, he he earlier, I think it was in October, launched the party's alternative health budget. And, you know, we went along, we're asking him questions about it or whatever. And one of the key promises that the party made was um, to introduce an Irish National Health Service and to sort of take that, you know, the way the private sector is so heavily embedded in, in the public system the, um, and to separate those and basically create that system. We were asking him, you know, like, how do you actually plan to do that, given we've heard many of the promise about universal health care, et cetera, et cetera. And he was saying, you know, well, I had a meeting with Robert Watt and I sat down with him and I asked him, would this be possible? And he said it was possible. All of the requires is, is, is political will. And money. And money. <laughs> well, there's that. Um, but I th- it was an interesting, you know, the way he kind of, because, you know, the, the image that he puts out of him meeting with, you know, very senior civil servants and talking about massive reforms to the health service and how people on the inside would very much back his plans. Um, but, you know, what's also interesting, I think, is before he launched that budget, he met with a 100 of the different groups, you know, whether it be the Irish Heart Foundation or the Irish Cancer Society or the INMO, all the big groups in health 
and uh, on, on a conference call. And what I was told is did a bit of digging around to see, you know, what was the response. And it was apparently very good. And they were urging him to, you know, stick with the policies that he was advocating for in his document, but to go further. And um, and he was apparently saying, well, we, you know, we have to be realistic here. So it was an interesting insight into that. So, of course, they are building bridges. And there was one comment that someone who is very uh, seasoned deals with all of these groups made. And they were talking about basically how people who crossed the road before to get away from the shinners, uh, we're now kind of leaping at the chance to to have meetings with them and have conversations with them. And there was an interesting, I think, uh, thing that Cullinan did, which tallies with that, which would be that the Irish Hospital Consultants Association last month also had their annual conference and they had David Cullinan in to speak at it. And they're regarded as very kind of hard to win over group and, you know, um, wouldn't always be a big fan of the, the policies being posited by various different people in government and outside government. So that was kind of, Interesting. And, and even Owen O'Brien, um, who obviously is when he talks and when he does press conferences, he says, you know, if I were the Minister for Housing instead of Dara O'Brien, which I really wish was the case, what would I say to you? You know, that's literally what he says. Um, and uh, just I think that he has his fans. I know he has his fans, actually, in the Department of Housing. And I know for a fact that he, there are people in there who would very much like it if he was in as the Minister for Housing. So he has... What I'm saying is that the TDs, the senior ones, they do have backing and they are working on that behind the scenes and they are very much preparing uh, for a life in which they ideally would be in government. And like Pat says, you hear that all the time now. If I was standing here instead of blah, 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 here's what I will be doing, etc., which is, sounds great, but, you know, and like, let's see if it happens. If they do get in, it'll be fascinating. I mean, I find that line about the Department of Housing and feeling in there in, in favour of Owen O'Brien as a future minister, I found, I found that fascinating and, and quite telling. There is, of course, the danger, isn't there, Pat? And I, I presume Sinn Féin are very aware of this, of of over-promising and under-delivering. You only have to look at Labour's experience post-2011 to see that, you know, that can actually create a rod for your own back politically, which can end up being disastrous. Um, when they're in power... The shine can go off very quickly if, if for example, David Cullinan hasn't delivered a universal national health service within the term of the government, which seems unlikely to me. Yeah, but I think the party is kind of aware of that, you know, and um, and as well as reaching out to stakeholders, talking to the civil service about how it might implement their plans and that sort of thing, which the party is doing. It's also studying the experience of kind of the, the, the failure of fellow European left populist parties like Podemos, like Syriza, um, once they got into government and found, uh, as all oppositions do when they get into government, that oops, it's not quite as straightforward as we might have thought. So I think what you will see the party do as the next election becomes closer is try to be realistic about its uh, its promises in government and saying things like, you know, you know, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have made such a bags of this for the last hundred years that it's going to take us more than one term to uh, to fix uh, to fix all these problems um that's what one would uh one one would expect them to do i mean I, like i think we'll be able to look at you know two vital strands of Sinn Féin's government project and i i suppose this is 
this is important for the construction of any coalition as well, because unless we assume that, as we said earlier, unless we, you know, there's two possible routes to government, both of them involving coalitions, and unless we assume that Sinn Féin can win an overall majority, which I'm prepared to predict now that they won't do, uh, then, you know, then you're talking about negotiations on a programme for government. So if you look at those two strands then of a Sinn Féin, uh, Sinn Féin governing project, which would be, I think, you know, the left-wing economic prospectus that would see a much greater role for the state, uh, higher taxes, higher, spe- higher taxes on some people, higher spending in areas like, uh, like health. Um, and all of that, as I say, left, wing, broadly social democrat, left social democratic uh, pr- perspectives. You hear Sinn Féin spokesman talking about, you know, com- comparisons with other social democratic European governments, that, that sort of thing. And allied to that then is the great project for many people in Sinn Féin, the broader Republican movement, which is the push for a united Ireland. And in some ways, that would be the greater change in government in Dublin once Sinn Féin was part of that government to reorient the Irish government's policy towards the, you know, constant, aggressive push for a united Ireland. I mean, uh, aggressive in the sense that they're, it's something that they're pushing for every day, every week in every part of government policy. And um, that, I think, would be a, a, a huge change, perhaps a greater change than many people realise. And it will also be, uh, I think, something that the, you know, the other parties to the Sinn Féin-led coalition, whatever they will be, whether, whether it's Fianna Fáil or the left-wing parties, that is something that they will have to think long and hard about before they join. That nationalist element to the, the Sinn Féin government project. Yeah, that, that is interesting. I mean, the other thing that strikes, always strikes me about, about Sinn Féin, Jen, is their uh, ruthless pragmatism and strategic thinking. And I mean that in a complimentary way, because that's the way a, poli- a political party should, uh, should go about its business if it's serious about achieving power. And one does hear quite a lot of talk on the left, as Pat says, about the example of, say, somewhere like Portugal, which has had a, a, a fairly successful coalition of disparate left-wing parties over the last five years or so. I think, although I think I was reading this weekend that it's, it's running into trouble right now. But putting on a pragmatic, strategic hat and looking at the options after an election, and I know we're just kind of, you know, we're guessing at what the numbers would be. I'm not sure I'd want to be relying on Thomas Pringle and Richard Boyd Barrett and a gang of other disparate people, two or three other small parties, to achieve a stable government that I could rely on lasting for four or five years. I I feel I might be far more attracted to getting a party, one more party, which gets me over the line, and I think it's pretty unlikely that party's going to be Fine Gael. So it looks like Fianna Fáil to me. Well, you know, we're nothing if we are not pragmatic and strategic on the political team. Um, so let me put my pragmatic, strategic hat on. Um, yeah, I agree. And I think obviously as well, if they're, char- if they're targeting or even if they're not targeting, if they do sweep up some of those left seats um, from smaller parties and independents, that obviously it lessens their... Uh, their idea or their route to power if that was to involve, you know, a coalition of the left. Um, So what were the options or what would be the options if they didn't, if they couldn't manage? And, you know, always remember that Enda Kenny, everyone doubted that he would ever manage to get, as some people called them at the time, not me, um, a ragbag of independence together 
to form his minority government and he did it. So, you know, politics is the art of the possible and all that. Um, but I suppose if, if we're looking at it pragmatically, honestly, like you would have to think that the moment their clearest path to government will be a coalition with Fianna Fáil. Um, and, you know, I'm sure some people would hear that and think, well, that's not going to happen, you know. But actually, before the last election, you know, we were ringing around grassroots across the country, um, talking to TDs on background. Um, and there was actually a lot more support there for talking to Sinn Féin, even in the first instance, let alone, you know, going fully down that road. Um, and myself and Cormac McQuinn did a survey of the Fianna Fáil TDs after the election and asked them, you know, should you have, do you think the party should have talked to Sinn Féin? And do you think the party should be open to talking to Sinn Féin after the next election? And I expected that, I, I don't really know what I expected, but I didn't expect as many people in the party to say what they said, which was that they absolutely should be open to having that conversation. A lot of them. I can't remember the exact figures off the top of my head, but I think it was the vast majority of the people who we uh, surveyed on and off the record for that piece. Um, and that's at a parliamentary party level. And I have talked to people in the grassroots, so not in a while, um, about the prospect of a Sinn Féin coalition. And in Fianna Fáil, I genuinely think there is more support for it than maybe people suspect. Um, whether that support exists in Sinn Féin, I mean, if the question is, this is your only route to power, and if they are serious about power, as they've always talked about being excluded, if they're included this time in the conversation, it's much more difficult for them to say no. Um, you know, it was a different ballgame the last time because Fianna Fáil wouldn't talk to them, Fianna Gael wouldn't talk to them. We know what happened there. Next time will be different. So it will be fascinating. But at this moment in time, if we go in the figures now and if this was at the end of the year, I would say that would be their most viable uh, entrance to government. Do you agree, Pat? Uh Yeah, I do. Um, looking at it at this point, the most likely route to government for Sinn Féin is with Fianna Fáil in coalition because I find it very difficult to see the numbers coming together for a left-led coalition. Once you exclude, as I think you would have to, uh, the you know some of the left-wing independents and smaller parties that wouldn't necessarily want to be in coalition. You might also have to include the Labour Party as well. I was talking to some Labour Party people as, uh, recently about whether they would be able to swallow the nationalist United Ireland part of the Sinn Féin government prospectus, they said, you know, no no way. They wouldn't uh, be able, whatever the rest of the party might do as well. So uh, I, I think if you, um, if you look at the numbers at the moment and you say where are, you know, what is the realm of the possible of where they might go, then I think, uh, yes, the most likely route to government for Sinn Féin is in coalition with Fianna Fáil. So could... Uh, could that happen? How would it go down in both parties? Could Fianna Fáil swallow the nationalist United Ireland element of the uh, of the Sinn Féin programme for government? That would require, I think, a pretty profound discussion within the party about where it where it sees it uh, where it sees itself in regard to uh, in in regard to uh, to that question luckily the party will have the opportunity for just such a reflection when it elects its next leader which we all assume will be at some stage between the period when Michal Martin leaves the office of Taoiseach in a little over 12 months time and uh, and the following election. So I think that will be a really interesting part of that discussion within Fianna Fáil and, you know, about 
whether it could, could go into coalition with uh, with Fine Gael or with uh, Sinn Féin and on what terms how uh, you know how does the party face up to that quest uh, to to the question of uh, of of a push for a united Ireland and on what terms um, uh, and I think that will form part of the internal discussion that the party has as well. But it's also a question for Sinn Féin, who will have campaigned for years and years and years to get Fianna Fáil out, to throw the old ball, old firm out of government, and then all of a sudden only to turn around and go, well, you know what, we're going to put them back in. They're not just such bad fellas after all. They've agreed to most of the things we want to do, not all, but um, we've had, you know, several negotiating with, uh, sessions with them. You know, we've had many cups of coffee with them. We went out with pints of them one night, and that turns out, you know, we can do business with them in government. And how would Sinn Féin's young, new, left-wing, radical support base react, many of whom have, you know, joined the party in recent years with the explicit intention of kicking out the old firm out of uh, out of government. How would they react to that? There was an interesting piece by the UCD academic Aidan Regan in the Business Post uh, on Sunday in which he sketched out precisely this scenario and he predicted that this, you know, uh, when they, uh, you know, when they inevitably make this jump that Sinn Féin would lose the support of many of those uh, younger left-wing, radically inclined uh, supporters for the great betrayal of putting Fianna Fáil back into government. And you can just imagine what both Sinn Féin's opponents on the left and uh, Fianna Gael would be saying in opposition uh, uh, to uh, to that government. But, you know, the question, you know, that the choice for Sinn Féin is, you know, power or not. And power comes with uh, compromises. That's the nature of politics. I think I think Aidan Regan is absolutely right in his analysis of of Sinn Fein losing some of that left wing support once it entered into government. In fact, I think more broadly, Sinn Fein might face all kinds of interesting challenges for the kind of broad coalition that now represents holding that together once it's actually in government. But that's obviously a challenge they're they're willing to accept. But finally, Jen, I just like to ask you: we've we've predicated this entire conversation on a sort of a sense of inevitability that Sinn Fein will be by far the largest party after the next election, and then will inevitably have to be. The lead party in government. Is there anything that could derail that process now that could make the inevitable not inevitable? What could go wrong between now and the election to make that not happen? Listen, if I knew all of that, I would have back-to-back front-page yarns for you for the next, up until Christmas. I expect nothing less. Well, you know, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. But um, no, it's a good question. And look the, look, the honest answer is anything could go wrong. You know, anything at all could go wrong. But obviously, if we're looking specifically at Sinn Féin, there's still so many legacy issues there. Um, and there's still a lot of issues that have not been addressed. And I think... The party sometimes thinks that because Mary Lou Macdonald has taken over from Gerry Adams, that this kind of is a cleaner slate there for younger voters. But as Pat points out, you know, it is older voters who tend to vote um, in, in, in larger amounts. And there are still many people, I think, who would be very reluctant to vote Sinn Féin um, and who don't really feel that, you know, there, there are still a lot of things unaddressed uh, and, and that, need to be, that need to be explained. Um, so, you know, that whole area, I think, is still 
uh, tricky for them and will continue to be tricky. Um, but that's essentially baked in, isn't it? You know, that's baked into all our calculations that we've been talking about, that, that there is that portion of the electorate that still has those reservations and, and that resistance to, to Sinn Féin. But given all that, yeah. the, the numbers are still the numbers as we see them at the moment. The numbers are still the numbers, yeah. I mean, the other thing you'd have to think that this will be predicated on would be the success or failure of government in achieving what they said they would achieve when they set out uh, in the summer when they um, had their programme for government. So I think that, you know, obviously housing, and we've talked about this so many times, because it is the big ticket issue. Well, one of the big ticket issues. Um, And you'd have to imagine a scenario whereby if they don't make inroads and because of COVID, I think it's really, really a delta hammer blow to their ambitions to build, you know, um, up to 30,000 houses a year. Which is just not going to happen until later, uh, later and much, much later in the in the decade. So, obviously, the success or failure of the government in, ter- in terms of their policy will have a big implication on on Sinn Fein and whether they can continue to use the platform that they have now and the examples and the issues that they do. Um, to me, that's one of the biggest, I suppose, things that we can we would keep an eye on. Um, like I said, the legacy issues as well. And then there's just always the unknown in politics. Stuff just happens. Banana skins are everywhere. You, you literally cannot look around the corner and know what might happen um, for any political party. That applies to Sinn Féin, that applies to Fianna Fáil, all of them. So we'll have to wait and see. I'm sure Pat would have much more insight into this than me. Yeah, there's a certain black comedy, Pat, isn't there? The idea that, you know, that this government might finally get its act together on housing, but it might be the next government which might be led by Sinn Féin that would actually benefit from that or that people might feel the effects of it during uh, during the course of a Sinn Féin government. But I suppose that's one of the that's one of the never-ending ironies of politics and how long things take to get done and who actually gets credit for them in the end. But it, it's still hard to see this government managing to turn the ship to such a radical degree over the next three years that it somehow really not just stems, but turns around this tide towards Sinn Féin. Yeah, I think that's right, because I think if you look at some of the things that are driving that, you know, the the, the housing crisis, dissatisfaction with the, uh, the, with you know, waiting lists in the health service and, uh, and, and various other public services, the housing shortage, of course, is the most acute thing. But, um, and that will be ameliorated to some degree by the time the next election comes, assuming present government lasts until early 2025 but it's not going to be it's not going to be solved i suspect it's not going to be completely solved uh by you know the end of the, the following government either so i suppose the question is for this government is whether it can demonstrate significant progress that's the best it can hope for and take the edge off the real anger that many people uh, you know, particularly those under 35, under 40, who feel shut out, you know, middle-income workers who feel shut out of the prospect of owning their own house. Now, can the government make uh, make progress, uh, sufficient progress on that? Well, that is to some degree in their uh, their own hands. But, you know, you look at... You look at other things like just the sheer unpredictability of of you know international affairs uh, at at the moment and how that might play into uh, to domestic politics. We appear to be heading into a period of fairly strong inflation. I mean, imagine what happens in the in this country if interest rates start ticking up by a couple of points by um you know by central banks you know and at the same time fuel uh, fuel prices 
continued their increase. I mean, that's a real cost of living squeeze and income squeeze on uh, on on uh, on middle income people. That will, of course, have political events. But it's not all one way traffic either. The economy is currently growing at a spectacular rate, so incomes will be growing, jobs will be uh, will be created. You know, the economic fortunes of the country is one of the tectonic plates of politics, and that is operating in the. Uh, in the government's media, to the medium government's medium term benefit uh, at the moment, and uh, and CASP can't be discounted. All of which is a rather long winded way of saying, I suppose, that who the hell knows where the political landscape is in three and a bit years' time. I mean, don't forget, even in relation to Sinn Fein, you know, six or eight months before the last general election. The party had a disastrous day in the local and European elections, which is one of the reasons why it didn't run run enough candidates in the last general election, because it was trying to hold on to the seats that it had. A week before the election was called, Sinn Féin was still trimming its tickets, removing candidates, because it feared it was running too many candidates and would end up losing seats. So, you know, things can turn around very, very quickly but uh, and and there's also one further point, I suppose. If you if you believe that, as most Sinn Fein supporters and many other left wing supporters of left wing parties appear to do, that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are essentially the same party, then that essentially the same party is ten points ahead of Sinn Féin in the, uh, in, in, in the opinion polls. So, you know, I don't think that a Sinn Féin government is inevitable. I think nothing is inevitable in, uh, in politics. It is at this point, by some distance, the most likely outcome of the next election, but it is not inevitable. Right, we'll put away our crystal balls for now, though, because there's only so much prediction you can do, but I'm sure we'll be doing more of it over the next weeks and months ahead. Anyway, regardless. But thanks for the moment to Jen and to Pat and to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back with you very soon. Remember, you can mail us with your thoughts or your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks for listening. 